Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media? Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. With the winter solstice behind us, those long nights and lengthening shadows will slowly begin to fade for another year. But don't worry, we'll keep the darkness going strong through the holidays. As I mentioned last week, we've got a little something extra cooking for patrons over the next couple of weeks. Some classic tales of holiday horror to really put you in the spirit. So, look forward to that. And speaking of Patreon, a huge thank you this week to Britt B. for becoming our newest patron. Your generosity warms our frozen hearts, Britt. We appreciate it so very much. Continuing on from last week, we have another of this year's Bram Stoker Award finalists to share with you, as well as a perfectly timed, festive little fright to get your holidays started right. So, without further ado, grab your mug of cocoa, wrap yourself tight, and gather round the fire. Let's get you naughty children of the night a little frightening fiction to fill your stocking. Our first story for the evening is another Bram Stoker Award runner-up, which comes to us from Kyla Lee Ward. Kyla Lee Ward is a Sydney-based creative who has worked as a ghost host, a carnival attraction, and acted in the Grand Guignol. Her fiction has garnered Australian Shadows and Dorealis Awards and multiple Stoker nominations, including for this story. Reviewers have accused her of being gothic and esoteric, weird and exhilarating, and of giving me a nightmare. 
she has a collection forthcoming from Independent Legions Publishing. Listen with me, children of the night, to Kyla Lee Ward's Stoker Award finalist, A Whisper in the Death Pit, first published in Weird Book number 44, May 2021. Dr. Jessamine Wing was a lead archaeologist on the expedition conducted earlier this year by the Department of Oriental Studies to the site of Kailik in southeastern Kazakhstan. The following email was received by the head of department on August 16th. It was the final communication from the expedition camp before the assault by as-yet-unidentified persons which claimed the lives of two of our colleagues. The university, in consultation with the families of the deceased and the missing, has decided to release the full text, together with a draft translation of an important inscription from the site. Please bear in mind that the latter has not yet officially been published and contains clear errors, as well as a degree of fancy. But her reflections on Kyalik may well constitute Dr. Wing's last written work. It is hoped that the free circulation of this material— as well as honoring the members of the expedition, will stop the spread of rumors that, as well as ludicrous, are disrespectful to their memory. To the world at large, those first images of the death pit will forever represent Kailik, but I retain a different picture. Situated between the mountains and the river, the site is indeed remote, yet also spectacularly beautiful. This morning I saw wild ibex grazing not twenty meters away from our encampment. As I write, the last light of the sun is still visible behind the peaks, and the excavated courtyard of the monastery is a pool of shadow. Soon, there will be nothing to see but the unbelievable plentitude of stars. The lights of Koilik village do not reach us here. I first saw the city ruins as a graduate student in 1998 when I assisted Dr. Aliyu Aliyev in the first of a series of beneficial exchanges between the university and the Institute of Archaeology, R.K. We were studying regional dialects and collecting folktales. She always said that the two were inextricable. It was in these circumstances that I heard the legend of the monastery of Akara, the name translating roughly as Pale Tree. I ask that you permit me to reiterate the relevant details— so you will understand the precise nature of this latest emergency. From the 8th century onwards, Kyalik was a major hub of the Silk Road, parties from China having survived the Taklamakan Desert and Tian Shan Mountains would frequently take the opportunity to on-sell their goods to Middle Eastern and even venturesome European traders, and pass the winter here before daring the return journey. The collision of cultures, doctrines, and technologies made, as in Taraz, for a unique and dynamic milieu, persisting until the city was abandoned towards the end of the 13th century. Koilik, number 34, 
Aliyev, 2000, recounts that, in the years before the coming of Genghis Khan, a jade demoness came out of the desert and corrupted the abbot of one of Kyalik's Buddhist monasteries with promises of immortality. Soon the entire community, including a formerly segregated order of nuns, had abandoned all regulation in favor of orgies alternating with torturous rites of abnegation and the brewing of strange potions. Caravans were plundered to provide ingredients, and children disappeared at night. Corruption entered the river and the crops failed. In desperation, the citizens appealed to the Khan, offering the unconditional surrender of the city if he would but rid them of this terror. A contingent of Mongols marched upon Akara, only to find it an empty shell. Its occupants had become immortal and flown to the western paradise. I first noted the correspondences between the folk tale and the Chinese alchemical parable in my paper, The Jade Demoness, A Journey of Motifs, J-O-O-S, 2001. The 13th century Hosi Lu, Do Writings, C. Van Galen, 1972, preserves the tale of Yu Shangshu, a princess of the Jin dynasty, who shunned marriage and the court to become a Taoist practitioner and disciple of the sage Peng Lu. Jade Pine, the name collates two traditional symbols of longevity, had long been thought to represent the elixir of immortality, arising from the death of her master, the proper combination of the elements, at the successful conclusion of the work. In this, Chinese alchemy is indeed similar to its Western counterpart. In this paper, I proposed that, setting aside the typical folkloric flourishes, it was not hard to picture a disciple or group of disciples who fled beyond the northern border during the purges conducted by the jinn, settling in Kyalik and pursuing immortality through the accepted means of meditation and alchemy. The destruction of the monastery by Genghis Khan was at least theoretically possible, placing the conclusion of the story around 1220 CE. But the death pit presents a grimmer ending. Confronted by an army known for its atrocities, the inhabitants of the monastery entered the subterranean meditation chamber and collapsed the passage behind them. In classic Taoism, ascension as a true immortal traditionally involved immurement in a cave for a period that might last centuries. This may have been a final attempt to grasp the crown of their practice, or it may have been the mass suicide, which was certainly the result. There were many reasons to conduct a fresh investigation of Kyalik, not the least being the site's elevation to World Heritage status in 2014. This expedition was always cast as an adjunct to the excellent and ongoing work being conducted by the Institute of Archaeology, R.K., and initially, I welcomed the participation of my old mentor, Dr. Aliyev, with great enthusiasm. It was her translation of the Stella that we found in the courtyard that confirmed the identity of our discovery. Akara was myth no more. This, too, has largely been submerged in the spectacular footage of the naturally mummified bodies and the chamber, with its stellar patterns upon the roof and brilliantly colored floor mosaics, featuring plants and animals of the region. But the Stella's importance cannot be overestimated, in terms of cultural history and the context it provides to the larger find. Not a classic sutra, 
it nonetheless must have been important to the practice of the monastery. I reproduce here the full translation. What, then, is the day? Eternity is the day. What, then, is the night? Everlastingness is the night. What, then, is the roof above? The never-ending sky. What, then, is the floor below? The boundless realm of earth. What, then, of the pillars? The mountains ever-rising. What, then, is thy meat? The presence of my sister. What, then, is thy drink? The presence of my brother. How good, how pleasant to join thee in the garden. How fine, how fragrant, the thousand-petaled rose. How fine, how pleasant, to feel the coiling dragon. How good, what sweetness, to hear the phoenix sing. What, then, is thy breath? Knowledge of the truth. What, then, is thy blood? Perfection of understanding. What, then, is thy life? To speak the sacred words. One morning in early July, a student volunteer from the Institute insisted to me that one of the bodies sighed when she touched it. Several of her fellows claimed to have heard whispering while in the pit that could not be traced to any person present. These rumors spread and were augmented to such effect that some of our personnel refused to return to the pit or handle the remains, placing the burden of logging and conservation on our contingent. This loss was in no way remedied by the increasing presence of the curious and pecuniary, to be sure, but also by belligerent groups from Koyalik village, the subject of previous reports, who drove around the outskirts of the site by night, shouting threats, and whom I suspected in the subsequent rash of thefts and sabotage of our equipment. Initially, Dr. Aliyev found it fascinating to observe how the discovery of the death pit was being incorporated into Koylik No. 34, and she attempted to engage the volunteers in the process of study, as a means of exercising their own fears. The locals used the old tale to forecast the consequences of our disturbance of the bodies, but for the main seemed gripped by a nonspecific dread. There are forty bodies in all, in varying states of preservation. Many remain in an upright meditative posture, both male and female. The sexes alternate, although male-male and female-female have been confirmed. All subjects wear robes of coarse gray silk, and their heads are shaven. Although all may be assumed as residents of the monastery, and the majority are surely from the Kyalik area, the variety of ethnicities is apparent to even the most casual eye. There is no trace of coercion in the array or such bodies as have been properly examined. Their tissues contain a substantial presence of alkaloids and metals, standard ingredients of the elixir, which may have contributed to the exceptional preservation of some of the mummies. We have not yet touched the central pair, who kneel opposite each other as if this were a marriage ceremony rather than a funeral. Those two are in truly incredible condition. I make no rash claims, but the woman displays an ethnicity consistent with northern China. Her companion is a Kazakh, with possible western traits. 
Taoism today is a lively religious expression for millions of people across the world. It approaches contemporary life with both continuity and a wonderful flexibility of tradition that has always focused on the development of both the community and the individual. We have received expressions of interest and support for our work from many Taoist communities, even though the practice of the monastery appears to have been truly unique. In any case, religious scruples are unlikely to have contributed to the unrest among our volunteers or in Koilik, where the majority of the inhabitants are Sunni Muslims. No, I fear it is the example of Hollywood that has sparked the surge of mummy madness, with a more worrying possibility that I will come to soon. You may well believe we have all been under a great deal of stress, and the physical labor is taking its toll. But I had believed the professional archaeologists were coping. This was an error of judgment, for which I take full responsibility. As the expedition leader, I should have been more aware. But despite being in her sixties, Dr. Aliyev was shaming the rest of us youngsters with her energy and commitment. She had been spending a considerable amount of time down in the pit, recording and identifying the various symbols incorporated into the mosaic. When she confronted me during today's lunch break, I was truly surprised. She said that it had never before struck her that these people had believed, had been utterly certain of their ascent to paradise. Should we not recognize this? Could we find some way to conduct our work while respecting their decision? Although she said this all in a reasonable tone, her hands were shaking. At this I abandoned my retort about 13th century Kool-Aid and told her much the same things I had the Cossack media, that we were treating the mummies with the utmost respect and bringing them to life in a world they could have never imagined. In turn, we were learning invaluable things from them. At this she sighed and said, in her opinion, we should remove no further material, bodies or otherwise, from the pit. The reason she gave was the encroachment of autumn and the attendant risk of storms, but as she said this, her hand shook even harder, and she gripped the notebook she carried strongly enough to tear it. I thought she might have been threatened. There is no question but antiquity thieves are circling, and in this part of the world such operators are both organized and armed. Indeed, I now suspect their hand in the demonstrations of the villagers. My subsequent inquiries amongst the local personnel turned up nothing in this regard, but a student did let slip that after speaking to me, Dr. Aliyev had returned immediately to the pit. This struck me as contrary, given her outburst, and I was thunderstruck to discover that she had gone down alone, in contravention of nearly every regulation we have. The rest of our people were in the conservation tent, dealing with the morning's extractions. As I approached, I saw the lamps we have installed in the pit were still off, and she had not signed into the pit logbook. I must admit, I stormed down the passage with every intention of demanding an explanation for her behavior, when I was relying on her to bring her fellow Kazakhs to their senses. But, whether you are superstitious or not, it is hard to shout in the death pit, and perfectly impossible to stamp. The delicacy of the find aside, there is a sense of solemnity, of stillness, 
that defeats even the most righteous anger or fear for a friend. And I confess when I heard that whisper trailing through the darkness, my heart nearly jumped out of my chest. It was her, of course. My Kazakh is good and I retain my familiarity with the local dialect, but this appeared to be an archaic form. I could make out maybe one word in four, but that was enough to identify the verse from the Stella. At this point I turned the lamps back on. The stars on the roof flashed, the brilliant depictions of fruit and flower leapt into life around symbols, suggesting everything from hieroglyphs to Manichaeism, and Aliyu rose with an expression of absolute terror on her face. We have removed twelve mummies thus far, clearing a wedge from the outermost circle towards the innermost pair, and it was here that she had been kneeling, much like a mummy herself. She waved at me, notebook in hand, as if the light had robbed her of the power of speech. As said, it is hard to shout in the death pit, so I merely waited as she came towards me, still not speaking but gesturing me away, back into the passage as she again turned off the lamps. I obeyed, but even once we were within the reach of daylight, she wouldn't tell me what was wrong. In frustration, I seized her notebook. She raised her hand, then seemed to think better of the action, and let me read it. This is what I read in her hasty scrawl, complicated by questions, references, and the multiple revisions that accompany translation. What, then, is thy meat? The presence of my sister. What, then, is thy drink? The presence of my brother. Brother, do you hear me? Sister, I hear you, but this means that you are separate from us, and this should not be. Something has changed. Listen. Our voice is less. We were many. Now we are few. What has befallen those whose voices are still? Have they ascended? I think something comes among us, bringing destruction. What, then, is thy life? In danger, brother. Danger. I asked Aliyu what this meant. She said that the only way for me to understand was if I returned to the pit with her in darkness, I would have to be absolutely silent, unless I could memorize the chant in an approximation of medieval Kazakh, which was as close as she had been able to get, and which seemed to be working. I must not, under any circumstances, disrupt her again. It was imperative she go back down there right now and guide them back into their meditation. I spoke gently of the conditions under which she had been working and how we were all extremely tired. I agreed that resealing the pit might be the only way to preserve the fine during winter, but in the meantime we should continue with our duty to conserve the mummies and send them to the Institute. She looked at me in that moment. I was once again a 26-year-old doctoral candidate, being farewelled by my mentor at the airport in Astana. Only this time... Instead of seeing pride in her eyes, I saw deep disappointment. She said, Do you remember paying of the tongue? Of course I did, from my own old paper. I found the reference in Cheng's 2003 work on the splintering of Tao sects during the fall of the Northern Song. Peng of the tongue was reportedly arrested by the first Jin emperor, divided into 
the four parts of a human being, and the fifth exclusive to men, and each separately boiled, for being unmasked, as I now recalled, as a ghost immortal. A ghost immortal is a Taoist bogey, someone without the patience or discipline necessary to become a true immortal. Instead, they settle for a lesser form of existence that needs to absorb life energy to survive, a popular pastime of mummies the world over. These are moral tales, illustrating the evils of pride and materialism, or of clinging to worldly attachments. Dr. Aliyev, I'm sure, knew them all. She had forborne till now, she said, out of respect and a wish not to cause panic. But if I did not agree to close the pit immediately, then she would deploy all her influence not to calm the volunteers and the villagers, but to whip them into a frenzy. She would tell them that my equation of Pang of Datong with the sage Pang Lu, which I made speculatively, merely to suggest historical context, proved I was aware of the real danger and was ignoring it. She would incite them to close the passage and abandon the dig, and see to it that I bore the blame. This was Kazakhstan, after all, and the Institute was her domain. How much of this was bluster I cannot say, but finally I understood that she believed. So now you see my situation. Although I do not believe she could leave the mutiny she proposes, she could cause disruption which could compromise the security of the site in the face of genuine danger. I ask only that the university back me in the action I propose to take. I have rallied the others, and if you will assume me of your support, we will remove Dr. Aliyev expediently from the dig. I believe she has gone back into the pit, which will allow this to be done out of view of the students. Chris has agreed to drive her to Almaty along with the next load of artifacts, the duration of which the journey should allow negotiation with the Institute. Share with them any of this material you think necessary. I ask you to please see that Dr. Aliyev is treated well. I am deeply saddened by this turn of events, but this is the only way I can see to proceed. After discussion with the Dean, our head of department responded in the affirmative. We can only assume from where the bodies were found that Dr. Wing did indeed confront Dr. Aliyev in the pit, and was in the process of escorting her back to the surface when the attack occurred. Although the police investigation is ongoing, we find no reason to doubt Dr. Wing's suspicion of antiquity thieves, taking the disruption as an opportunity to raid the site. Finding our colleagues and Dr. Aliyev in the pit, they killed the two men and abducted Drs. Wing and Aliyev. Perhaps they forced them to identify the most valuable of the remaining artifacts, resulting in them taking the central pair of mummies and some of the smaller vessels and burners. At the time of writing, both women are still missing. No ransom demands have been received, and it is considered likely that they too are dead. Although Dr. Wing's story ends here, some further entries were found in Dr. Aliyev's notebook. Thanks to the Institute of Archaeology, R.K., who share our grief, we reproduce these here in recognition of Dr. Aliyev's sense of the sanctity of Kailik. If the conflict between this and Dr. Wing's sense of responsibility toward the expedition contributed in any way to the tragedy, it can only be considered a terrible coincidence. What, then, of the new voice? It speaks the words. Corrupted, my brother.
it speaks strangely, with no true understanding. Your people have lost their way, as did mine. What, then, of our fate? Shall we abandon your people when their need is so great? It is as my master said, before he was twice killed. Beyond the rules, beyond even our own ascension, our great duty is to preserve the lore. Shall we be monsters, then? We shall be teachers, of the kind this barbarous new world demands. Brother, it is fate that has awakened us. With grief I see that it is so. Embrace me, sister, in our garden this last time. Speak to me, brother, the sweetest of all words. What then is thy meat? O oh, brother, I hunger. What then is thy drink? Brother, I thirst. Such agony, to come aware once more. To know of the space between us, the boundaries of flesh. Such agony as the heart twitches, as withered lungs begin to fill. What then is thy breath? Sense of sweat, my brother, of perfume, oil, and blood. What then is thy blood? Foul, my brother, thick and cold, yet thanks to the elixir, it flows. What then is thy life? It lies in them. That was Kyla Lee Ward's A Whisper in the Death Pit, as read by Heather Thomas. Heather Thomas is a jewelry expert by day and master of none by night, dabbling in costuming, art, music, writing, and narration. She is a lifelong fan of all things horror and enjoys reading stories and novels to her friends and family when they let her. She lives in Denver, Colorado with her husband and her spoiled rotten cat, Oni. Thank you, Heather. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Our second tale tonight is a festive little fright, which comes to us from Tarver Nova. Tarver Nova is a spec-fic writer and professional night owl in New York. His stories are found, or forthcoming, in Kaleidotrope, Daily Science Fiction, and Baffling Magazine. He is an associate editor of Podcastle and Catscast. Find him at tarvernova.com or show him your cats on Twitter. Listen with me, children of the night, to Tarver Nova's A Little Christmas Folly, a Tales to Terrify original. It was late, already too late, the night before Christmas Eve, when Jürgen finally arrived home. His family gathered as he tumbled through the door, a Nordic wind at his back. Hurry, papa, said little Matilda, young enough for hope to root. We've already missed Lil' Ulifton. Jürgen leaned on the kitchen sink. The room was warm lit. The air held a peppermint sweetness. A twinkling in the kitchen window, the reflection of the Christmas tree in the living room behind him. But outside, it was rolling snowdrifts, dark and bitter. Jürgen scowled. Fie on it, he said. The factory was hell today. Little Christmas Eve is cancelled. He rummaged through the liquor cabinet. The children's faces sank. Hilgas steeled. But think about it, Papa said young Samuel, appealing to reason. With no Lil Ulafton, won't the Nisser steal Christmas Eve? That's what Mama always says. His hand still in the liquor cabinet, Jürgen looked to the ceramic figurine standing behind the sink. Two portly Nissers staring with their red hats and white beards, merrily clinking mugs. He scoffed. Let them. He slumped to the table, bottle in hand. Hilga kept her face firm set, but her eyes flickered, ablaze behind furnace grates. So we've all made our choices tonight, she said. Jürgen froze, lips puckered at the bottle tip. But Hilga said no more, and she shuffled the children off. He shrugged and took the bottle to his mouth. He drank to a whirling haze. Hours then, a crash startled him awake. He wiped spittle off his cheek, early dawn light and cold breeze from the living room. He rose, the room spun, but still he caught the white-bearded, red-hatted half-man dragging his Christmas tree out the window. He hollered, threw the empty bottle. It shattered against the window frame, and out the nisser slipped. Jürgen burst from the back door, rifle in hand. The air hurt to breathe. In the twilight, 
a path cut through the snow to the Nisser, halfway to the woods with his tree. Jürgen leveled his gun and fired. One Nissa fell, spurting on blood. The others shrieked and scattered to the woods, leaving the tree in an unkempt bed of snow. For a moment he stared agape, sharp breaths fogging his face. But the wind began to sting his eyes. He grinned. The door swung open, and a Nordic wind again followed Jürgen in. He stomped to wake the house treading in snow, and he threw the red hat on the kitchen table, a trophy, a conquest. I've done it, he yelled, his words slurring. I've saved Christmas. No one answered. He frowned, checked the children's bedroom. He found made beds as if they'd never slept there at all. Surely they'd just stayed the night with Hilga. But no, Jürgen's bedroom was pristine as well, cleaner than Hilga left it on a good day. He trod to the hallway, rage bubbling in his throat, but this melted into a groan when he saw the bookshelves. Empty. Same for the drawers. Empty. Same for the cabinets, the toy boxes, the bins. Even the picture frames hanging on the walls were empty, bleach white. And so it was that the Nisser stole Jürgen's Christmas Eve, after all. That was Tarver Nova's A Little Christmas Folly, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the managing editor here at Tales to Terrify. He has narrated stories for Tales to Terrify, Far-Fetched Fables, and Starship Sofa. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Orion D. Hegre, Paul Belcher, Amanda Gottfried, and Kathy Robinson whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our tea Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. 
so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we delve into ancient lore with more Tales to Terrify. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 